Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to the 10 Collective Podcast, the place to be for six, seven and eight figure Amazon sellers. Particularly, I'm aiming to reach those who are serious about building a sellable brand. And today's guest is really uh, a regular now. And that's for a very good reason, because uh, Chris Shipfling from Global Wired Advisors is all part of the ecosystem of people who help people who built wonderful businesses to sell them and realize the value of them. Chris is a managing partner of GWA or Global Wired Advisors, who are a lower middle market investment bank focused on e-commerce businesses hope i got that about right chris welcome back to the show thank you where are you coming to us from today chris yeah my office here in charlotte north carolina so we we've been back in the office for for some time and you know kind of letting the support staff feel come in as as comfortable as they as they like but yeah things are starting to open up slowly but surely here in north carolina yeah that awkward retransition phase back to quotes normal which no longer feels normal is it i mean in, in london it's not we're not quite out of the woods yet well we'll have to see what happens yeah but. so we are going to talk today about some big picture stuff yeah. which i think you guys really have a, a great handle on so before i get into that just to sort of unpick what it is that you do i mean i suppose if i may use this word it's probably a swear word for you now the primitive version of what you do is you're a broker but that's not really an adequate explanation so on yeah. the other hand a lower middle market market investment bank yeah. what, what how tell us more about what it is you guys are actually doing yeah. in the ecosystem of e-commerce we can talk about this for days and we won't because we have in the past and and i'll break it down you know quite simply yeah the the term that's used most is business broker and the reality is when you get into when you get into bigger uh, more enterprise or institutional level financial markets there's very clear distinction between what an MA advisor is versus a business broker as we've spoken to in the past and the reason why we call ourselves an investment bank is because, A, we offer a few different products that are much different than just a business brokerage process. Business brokerage process, it's very simple. It's very its very uh, easy. It's not complicated. When you start to get into more complicated businesses, and mainly that comes with size and scale, and you're having to present businesses to specific types of, of investor or investor classes. It just starts to get more. It just starts to get more complex, and you have you have to present and analyze and sell the data and the company in a much different way. So really, it boils down to ability, which ability really is about career experience. I've said it a hundred times on your show. You know where we come from, which is the bulge bracket investment banking world. But it also boils down to process. Our process is wildly different, and so. Usually what happens with the types of with with specific types of businesses again kind of around size you will have very very different outcomes when it comes to different products that we offer. And so there's a whole other show we could probably do Michael which goes into what is an investment bank and what is an investment banker. You know, we do get asked a lot what we think about the stock market which is not what we do. <laughs> We're not a public equities broker, you know, so so yeah, that's that's probably it boiled down. And what we do majority of the time is the cute way is saying sell side engagement. Really what that means is we take you through our process to help you sell your business. That's the most simplistic form. Yeah, simple is good. I, I think that it's very easy to end up talking in jargon and basically you either get a bunch of suits in, in a corporate job nodding like they understand what they're talking about and we've all been in their meetings <laughs> where you think, does the emperor have no clothes or is it just yeah. me? You know. But uh, also I think sometimes cutting things to the chase is, is, is helpful. I mean, for all that, it's a very primitive kind of thing and jarring thing for you but it's interesting to know i mean i guess what i'm taking from that is that as you would expect as a business gets bigger and, and more complex but also as the buyers are more sophisticated and and probably have backers who have more complex demands etc cetera, etc cetera, 
then you would expect the process to be more sophisticated and to, to split it. into pieces. Yeah, yeah, That's right. that makes sense to me. Yeah, that's right. They expect they expect a specific type. They're used to a specific type of process. They they expect the financials and the company data, everything to be presented in a very specific way that is used more at that institutional level. And so, yeah, that's 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 really what it boils down to: ability and process. Those are the two things that really make the the strong distinction between. I'll use a word and I'll explain it. The different types of intermediaries, which is just a cute way of, you know, you hire me to take you through a process. Great. And that was the missing concept that's kind of tying together all these. I've been, you know, using broker, MA advisor, investment bank. The thing is, I always think of the bank as the people who own all the money. But of course, in, in a way, once you dig under the hood, they're an intermediary. In fact, pretty much everyone in the world seems to be some kind of intermediary for something else yeah. in the modern world, right? Well, well that seems to right. be how so, it works. You know, the, the, other, <laughs> the other way, the other direction, which is where we're headed, is, is you become a broker dealer. And that's something that again, could require an entire show, which has barely any, has zero relevance to your audience. So it's not even worth it. But, you know, becoming broker dealer in the United States means that you are licensed by the SEC and you can, you can actually trade securities. And there is just none of that that's currently happening or needed in this, in this sector now, but we are anticipating in the next two to three years that as, as this sector continues to grow and get larger, as it continues to, to mature, there is going to be a need to start introducing security trades within this this particular sector with mergers and acquisitions. So, <laughs> I know. Right, well, so I'm, I'm starting to feel like over my head, but but it's it's worth knowing that you know. Let's put it simply, it's a complex world, and you guys understand it. And I think that let's just put it simply that that is obviously really critical yeah. once you're dealing with a business above a certain size. I guess it we is. ought to just now put a pin in this, but just last question around that. What kind of size of business and how do you define that size would yeah. this stuff actually start to be important at? Yeah, we define it very clearly to make it very easy for people to understand. I mean, around 1 million to 1.5 million in what we would call EBITDA. Another way of putting it is cash flow and probably the most familiar term is SDE. But you know, when you really start to become more sizable, you've got more, more of a complex organization and seller discretionary earnings isn't the financial metric that anyone in a sophisticated buying world actually understands or even talks about. They talk about EBITDA. And so, you know, really once you start to reach a an EBITDA level, which a lot of a lot of accountant accountants will use that metric, EBITDA or adjusted EBITDA. So this isn't some you know sophisticated term. It's used a lot. But you know, once you really reach that one to 1.5 million for us up to 10 million EBITDA, that's the lower middle market for us that has we define it, that's where we like to play. You know, anything that's under a million or a million five, that's probably just it's it's suited for a broker process it's you know the the the, it's really square what we call main street and breaking glass ceiling of a specific multiple is just really hard but once you really start to get more size to you that one to 1.5 and growing because typically when we take clients on you know it's a six to nine month process you know during that time they're still growing so they're probably going to grow into something that's you know two two and a half million or at least two million from the time that we take them on on a trailing 12 basis so Anyways, yeah, that's we define it just like that. We're pretty strict on sticking to that. When anybody who's below, we love to have good altruistic conversations with and help them and, you know, either steer them in the right direction or give them really good guidance if they say, "Hey, I don't really care to grow there. I'm 500,000 in EBITDA and I just want to sell my business." I just talked to a guy yeah, Friday, 650,000 in SDE. 
we had a 35 minute awesome conversation on what I told him. I said, look, if I were in your shoes, knowing what I know and knowing the world and knowing the market, this is how I would take your business. And this is how I would approach selling the company. You know, he was, he was very thankful for, for that time spent. So I want to make it clear. It's not that <laughs> you hit a million, million five and you're, or you're under that. We don't talk to you. We absolutely will help. So. That's very kind. No, and I, I would always urge somebody to speak to somebody who they cannot possibly sell to you. That sounds like a weird thing to say, but because uh, it's kind of you know free advice from somebody it who's is. not got a dog in the fight, really. Because if it's you're true. not going to buy a business because it's too small, yeah. So um, this is all very interesting sort of context, really, for um, the presentation that i know you did recently which i'd like to sort of basically get you to run through and then i'll interfere because i had this idea that it's going to be a more interesting podcast i hope i'm right which was really about the sort of structure of the ecosystem is the word that springs to my mind which i think is important for us to understand as owner operators of businesses which is really who this podcast is for not to become an expert in that world, but to understand who is on the buying side of the equation. And of course, the, the world of intermediaries such as yourself that we'll end up with working with more directly. Because in the end, it's a bit like trying to sell a physical widget, which is very familiar to all, all of us in this world, which is if you understand the end consumer and what their fears and aspirations are, then you're going to do a much better job of engineering a product that sells to them. That's familiar to all of us with physical products. But I think if we take the same approach to engineering a business for a sale, then it's going to help us. So that's my pre-frame of why we should yeah. be listening to what could seem a bit, otherwise a bit abstract. Yep, that's right. Absolutely. So, yeah, happy to go ahead and share my screen now. Yeah, please like. do. Yeah, let's um, let's see this thing. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the way that we've been talking internally just about what's happening in the market, and, and that's something that we like to do a lot as partners is we get together and we just really talk through, you know, because we're talking to a lot of buyers out there, right? We're having lots of conversations with all types of buyers. We're having conversations with the aggregators that are out there or private investment vehicles or, is what some other folks have called them. You know, we're speaking to the funded sponsors, which is what we would consider private equity. We're, we're also speaking to corporate strategics. So, you know, we're getting a good a good lay of the land, a good landscape on what's on what's really out there, and what what are people, what are folks saying, how they view. So, you know, I thought it would be great just to kind of walk through. Hey, you know, let's give an analysis of where we've come and where are we going, right? And kind of wrap it up in a bow with our view. But you know, these are things that you should be keen to understand as a business owner of really any size. You should understand the market and you should understand the financial market and where things are headed because. Even if you say, well, this is not for me, this is boring, I don't want to sell my business, you got to also understand that there's now a lot of people pouring lots of capital into the Amazon platform. That's yeah. something you should be aware of. There's a lot of new competitive pressure. You you were dealing with just Amazon pressure for the past you know five years. Now you've got a whole other new level of, of competitive pressure that's really pushing down. How do you respond to that? You know, I think that's very important. So it's more than just, oh, look at all these people buying businesses. No, it's look at all these people buying top quartile businesses within specific verticals and are about to pour lots and lots of money into the advertising of those specific businesses. Yeah, I think I think all of us have to be aware of, even if you never want to sell your business and never want to talk to a broker or, or an aggregator or any other form of intermediary, you got to be aware that they're pouring their money into the platform. And if nothing else, that, that changes how you approach your business. So yeah, it's absolutely it critical. Yeah, that's right. So, so a couple of things we can run through this, you know, the way that we've been describing what's happening or what's happened in the past year, year and a half with all of this new venture debt that's poured into this space. It's, it's a lot like the, the Grand Canyon, if you've been to the Grand Canyon, but you've seen, or at least you've seen pictures of the Grand Canyon where, you know, there's thousands upon thousands of years of, of geological eras that are written into the rocks, right? 
And the way that we really have been seeing kind of this new influx of venture debt and capital into this space is, is a lot like one of those lines in the rocks. It's a lot like one of those eras. Not saying that's fleeting per se, but it's just part of the, the history of where this, this sector is going from a maturity perspective. We don't know how long this is going to last. We have some ideas, which we'll get to you know in a little bit here. But at the same time, it's very, very, very good to put perspective into all of this that, hey, this is one sliver, one era amongst many eras of what we believe is to come, which is really good news for sellers. So why is new money pouring into Amazon-based companies? A lot of people ask that question. You know, why are they here? What, what's their what's their goal, right? Well, a couple couple things. One, Amazon companies were growing and largely getting ignored and discounted over the past five years, as we all know. Call it prior to COVID, prior to you know the seismic paradigm shift that occurred with the amount of retail sales concentration going towards e-com. Prior to this, trades or or businesses that were sold were highly discounted. You know, any type of real financial market analyst would look at, at at the multiples and call them junk. That's what they would say. They would say, you know, that is absolutely indexing well below market multiple for a consumer products business. And so, you know, but a lot of during this time, a lot of great small small to medium sized businesses were not were created under the radar and growing and thriving, right? Well, what venture debt, what venture uh, capital and debt saw is they saw an arbitrage opportunity and they exploited that arbitrage opportunity through a series of raises and then buying these companies at lower multiples. And it happened and came in very fast and very furious, almost giving sellers some ways no time to just sit back and go, what is actually happening right now? (laughs) Right. And so it continues to happen. And even they even exploit that. Hey, we'll close quick. We'll close ASAP. We're funded. We'll get you money. You'll have a check in your hand so quick. It'll make your head spin. And so what was really happening, though, was arbitrage. People who are on this podcast or some of you are probably used to that, like you used to do maybe four or five, six years ago, or used to walk into a giant superstore and buy a bunch of shampoo that was X and you could sell it on Amazon for Y, right? It's the same same type of mentality. So why though are corporate strategics private equity now why are they interested in this space? I think this is something very intriguing of where things are potentially headed when it comes to just capital and this sector. So, you know, we had a recent transaction that we took through our process. You know, we 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 took it to really what we do is we take it to three different levels of of potential financial buyers. We go to corporate strategics first if it's vertically focused. And what that means is that they're just focused on a category. This was baby products. So they're focused on a category. It's a nice business, growing business, thriving business. It was just shy of $3 million of EBITDA. And on that business, it got 10 private equity offers on that, on that company. It got one aggregator offer. Now, aggregator had to bow out pretty quickly because the bids for this particular business was indexing well above where lots of trades are happening now. It's five and a half to eight. This isn't a testimony about our process. It's a testimony about how on fire direct-to-consumer is right now and how much interest there is from all levels of financial buyers in this particular sector. This is really good news for everyone listening. Pick a couple of those things about that because I think that's we're going to talk about that in a bit more detail but later hopefully. But was that a pure Amazon play that business or what what sort of characteristics of that business? It, 
It was 60-40, but what was interesting, so 60% Amazon, 40% Shopify. But what was really intriguing is at that level of Amazon concentration, you still usually get the usual headwinds about, hey, there's too much risk, you know, Amazon risk, platform risk. And a lot of that went away. It really did. This These particular PE funds, they're so hungry for e-commerce right now that they're willing to live with the risk. And part of it is, I mean, Amazon has grown over the past six years so fast, so furious, so large. It's You can't ignore the fact that it's, it's part of every consumer product strategy, everyone, from Fortune 500 all the way to the smallest little mom and pop you could possibly think of. It's part of everyone's strategy. So that was what was really interesting about this particular trade, because in the past, when you've had a higher concentration of, say, direct-to-consumer, or let's just call it Shopify to make it easier, you you were you were more valuable. Now, that still rings true because of the data piece. It does. But at the same time, this was an interesting trade because it told us a lot about just the state of the union. It was really intriguing. Very interesting. So in other words, the the data, so the, I guess also the relationship with the consumer, I would think as a sort of more branding and marketing focused kind of guy, but the data, if you're thinking, think of that, that you have and the breakdown of detail that you can get in an email list or the sort of demographic data, their behavioral data, et cetera, is going to be huge. But that's interesting that you're saying that's the value add with the, the Shopify or direct, direct to consumer site, as opposed to the lower risk profile. It seems like... And then this, again, this feels to me is like part of what bubbles tend to have is like discounting risk lower than it should be. It always feels to me like pretty much everyone in the Amazon sort of ecosystem that whether, you know, business owners particularly, but also some of the buyers now seem to really not value the risk highly enough, if I may put it that way. I mean, what are your views on that? Well, yeah, let me let me think through that. Let me think through exactly what you just said. So basically what you're saying is in a bubble, there's more discount to risk. They kind of devalue that risk is what you're saying, right? Yeah, broadly, they're not well, they're not accounting for it in the number that they put on it somehow. I mean, that, that right. would be my instinct, having worked with some Amazon sellers who've, you know, unfortunately never experienced it myself, but worked with several people who had uh, account suspension, which was pretty damn painful and does impact it's the cash flow. It's painful. Yeah. It's not fun. And it's hard. It's arduous to get back on the platform. So, and your question is kind of where do I believe things are headed with discounting risk? Is that what, is that the question? I guess, yeah, that's it. Well, I guess my first question would simply be, are they under sort of are they discounting that risk too much, do you think? And is that an unsustainable level of pricing? Yeah, no, I don't think they're, you know, private equity, they're, they're a bit more, they let VC come in and do a lot of the mistakes. <laughs> and I think what they've been able to see is that there's been a lot of businesses that have been traded and sold, and there's been very little fallout. Let's okay. say there's some water cooler talk, you know, when you talk to some people, they'll say, Oh, well, I had a friend of a friend whose business was did this as soon as it's like, yeah, but that's all just very hearsay. You know, there's no real hard data that showed 50% of the businesses that are purchased went under suspension right away because they couldn't transfer or, mi or migrate. You know, that's a different conversation. And so because you don't have a lot of those types of data points, I think, yeah, they're starting to get way more comfortable with the Amazon risk. And I think they're starting to they're starting to kind of de not devalue the risk, but they're starting to kind of look at the business more as a brand, as what type of staying power does it have? What kind of scale does it have? Versus tainting the multiple with retained risk, basically, or just risk in general. So interesting that I it feels to, still to me that that they've just got more comfortable 
with the risk because they haven't had the car crash yet recently and therefore it doesn't show up in the data but you know hey maybe i'm being skeptical i mean these are smart no. guys they know more than me i just like this it just surprises me this is all analysis and, and yeah. it's still you know it's it's a lot of like if i were to compare it to say march of 2020 when everybody on facebook was a COVID expert we were just making <laughs> things up because we didn't actually have real data you know yeah. so yeah. it's the same type of analysis which is yeah well it could actually go this way and that makes logical sense. But until we actually have time and experience to go through it, then we can look back and go, yeah. And so we're there, right? The past two years, okay. three years, there's been plenty of trades. And I think sophisticated capital is going, yeah, Amazon has to be part of the strategy anyways. Like it's just okay. part of the conversation now. Yeah. Okay. So whatever risk you've got, it's just the risk of doing business and just like, well, you yeah. Know, yeah. And let's put it this way. So, you know, when I was working, I used to work at a company called Evenflow and Evenflow was a, it's a middle market juvenile products company. It's pretty, you know, sell just a lot of, a lot of everything for baby, basically. You know, when I would sit and I, I ran Amazon, I was one of the, I was one of the, it was one of my accounts that I ran. And so when I would go and talk to the CEO about Amazon, where, where things were headed, the, the sales of Amazon, the, the asks, the, the trade marketing, the, all the stuff that we, we need to put into it was always just like, I care more about Walmart. I care more about Target. Well, now, you know, Amazon for that particular company represents a pretty decent chunk, like driving up close to Walmart type numbers. It's a conversation that's in every boardroom. Well, those are private equity owned businesses that are having those conversations. So therefore, private equity is starting to kind of see on the ground and other portfolio companies, the importance now of Amazon. And so it's trickling down going, okay, we need to lever ourselves heavy, heavier into e-commerce, but we, we got to go ahead and just put the whole risk of Amazon to the side. That's very interesting. I guess it's a bit like, you know, everyone's got gone come to terms with two risk factors, which is a bit like with COVID, actually, will suddenly come and bite us all in the proverbial behind, I think, at some point, which is number one, internet risk. I mean, it's extremely easy for for certain regimes to just literally clip a couple of wires and they've cut their country off from the rest of the global internet. Mm -hmm. Apparently, Russia has that. Egypt looked at that and thought, oh, we could do that. Apparently, somebody put a backhoe through through a, a big internet cable and in. I think it might have even been in North Carolina sometime in the late 90s and cut off a third of the internet. So actually, there's a physical infrastructure vulnerability. There's terrorist risk, etc. But people somehow don't worry about that, even though they probably should. So I guess that's kind of an analogy. And the other thing is that... Google risk, which is to say that the Google Panda updates or whichever name, Penguin, Panda, whatever strange creatures seem to be, you know, disastrous for many internet based businesses. And yet people kind of don't account for that either when you're selling them. Yeah. So maybe it's That's just right. coming into line with that rather risk blind way of operating. No, it's true. And I mean, look, let's <laughs> simplify it even more. I mean, think about when you get on a plane ride. The data would tell you, oh, well, you have a better chance of, of getting into a car crash than you would actually crashing in an airplane. But the reality is when you crash a car, you have a higher probability of surviving. And when you crash in a plane, you're dead. It's done. Yeah. Goodbye. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a straight dirt nap, as we like to say. You know, it's done. So, you know, that's that's but but you've you've gotten comfortable with that risk. And knowing that, hey, if this thing goes down, I'm done. Like I'm I'm gone. But you get comfortable because more and more plane rides happen daily and less and less news pops up. And if something pops up, they're much more sophisticated in the way that they're they're analyzing the crash and fixing the crash quickly. You just you just your mind goes to a different place now. When in yeah. reality, like you should be I don't want to like play on any fears of anybody who's listening what they applying on a plane, but the reality is you you actually should if you want to just focus on that risk 
factor alone, you should be petrified of flying on air. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? That I suppose COVID made everyone an armchair sort of epidemiologist, but also an armchair risk and an analyst. And I think actually that's been a, it's, I think it's really a business-like mentality in the end. I think it's, it it's actually very intelligent, but we don't want to go too much down that rabbit hole. But I guess right. suffice to say that, that, that the, the private equity guys are now accepting Amazon risk and the same kind of blasé-ness like it's fine, even though it might not be with the, the way that Amazon sellers have often done as well. Hey folks, thanks so much for listening to today's interview with Chris Shipfilling from Global Wired Advisors. As ever, we've had Chris and his uh, partner, one of the partners there, Jason Somerville, on the podcast several times. And the reason for that is because it's good to get that perspective change that we're trying to get across, I guess. Obviously, Chris kind of lives in that world and I delve into it from time to time when I try and help clients to find suitable brokers or indeed, in this case, M&A advisors or, or indeed investment banks. So that brings me to the first point we discussed, which is really just the terminology and getting your head around the fact that at a more sophisticated level of business sale, there are more roles at the table than just the idea of a broker. And uh, obviously, that's one of the most important things we got to today. And really, this this presentation that, that we went through with Chris, that's a grand canyon of layers of geological layers that really sees that the development of the buying and selling of e-commerce businesses as going through a phase relatively quickly where it's in this sort of early phase now and that's according to Chris sees a phase of maturity that lasts for quite a long time so interesting stuff I mean it's it's hard for me to comment too much directly on this because really it's it's quite a sophisticated area but what I would say is a couple of takeaways first of all whether you're ever considering selling your business or not, and whether you're interested in working in, with a mer mergers and acquisition specialist or an investment bank or not. The fact that there's so much money piling into e-commerce now is something all of us as, as business owners and operators have to take account of. That the top quartile, as Chris put it, of businesses are going to be very, very well funded from here on in. And we have to compete, Anne, and uh, that, that we have to find guerrilla ways to compete. Sometimes it's not just about putting more money in. Sometimes, you know, money is deployed in a very unsmart way. And we have to use our resources in a much smarter way. But I think we have to recognize that there's a sea change, a shift in the landscape around us and start to adjust. So hopefully this is thought provoking. This is only ever going to be a taster for of and a sort of beginning to exploring an area like this because it's so big and, and rich. If in doubt, you can take up Chris and Jason on their kind offer. They basically only will work with businesses as brokers or, or were merger uh, specialists, I should say, if they're doing over a million dollars EBITDA per year or, you know, pre-tax profit, I suppose, would be the primitive version of that. And nevertheless, they are able to talk with you and give you advice if you're doing considerably less than that because they're generous people. So if you can get uh, in touch with them, just go to um, www.globalwiredadvisors.com and you can book in some free time with them. If you can do that, I would really urge you to do that because they can answer the particular questions you might have uh, in this area. And I think the more we can educate ourselves about the landscape that we're operating in now, the more we can adjust our business strategy to be fit for purpose as we go into mid-2021 and beyond. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Thanks so much for listening to the 10K Collective podcast, part of the family of amazing FBA podcasts. 
Today's episode is sponsored by the new e-commerce podcast, The E-Commerce Leader. The podcast is hosted by yours truly and Jason Miles, multi-million dollar Shopify owner and Unimi's highest rated e-commerce instructor. If you're the owner of a thriving online business and you want to become the best e-commerce leader you can be, it's got your name on it. For free guides and mini courses on many topics, go to www.theecommerceleader.com.